right, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to, guess where, the book of Acts. We've been started a series on the book of Acts, and um, we're going to continue that. Last week, we saw how the Lord added uh, to the church uh, 3,000 people who had heard the Apostle Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, and Caleb walked us through what that church looked like, how they were a, a group of people who were deeply committed. It was a communal body. Um, they shared together. They were collaborative in their fellowship, and they were contagious as they shared the good news of Jesus. It was a powerful, powerful beginning to the church of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to go back this morning to a passage that I um, briefly looked at uh, two weeks ago, and I wanted to come back to it because it's kind of a thorny passage, and it's a, a difficult one. And I, I was actually thinking uh, yesterday after the Saturday service, I should have probably just done a podcast on this thing and directed you to it and said, uh, you know, go, go online and watch it, but, oh well, here we go. Take your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the conclusion to his sermon. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is God and he is Messiah. This Jesus that you crucified just a month and a half ago. And he brought that to their attention uh, even back in verse uh, 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. And so he's speaking to these Jewish people and he's condemning them. You crucified your Messiah. And he goes on in verse 37, when they heard this, They were pierced to the heart, cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Man, is that not teed up perfectly for what shall we do? And they have been brought into conviction. They've heard the message of Peter. He is Lord and he is Christ. They've believed that message. They're cut to the heart. But what are we to do? We've crucified the Messiah. And so what does Peter tell them? Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them and said, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, Some people reading this passage are going to jump to the conclusion that in order to have eternal life in heaven, you've got to do what Peter just said. I mean, he said it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, And I understand why people would come to that conclusion because Peter did say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. The problem is that doesn't jive with the rest of the book of Acts with other passages. For instance, like in chapter 10 when Peter's talking to Cornelius, this Gentile, this Roman centurion and his family, 
And he says, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Or in chapter 13, therefore let it be known, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed. The word is justified from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Or in chapter 15, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, this is the Jerusalem council, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Or chapter 16, verse 31, to the old Philippian jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said and Silas, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So, okay, so which is it? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Or, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Well, to help us understand uh, this difficult passage, uh, we're going to go to Luke's first volume. Luke, remember, wrote the Gospel of Luke and his second volume, the Acts. So let's go back to his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and go and turn to chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. And Luke writes this, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Triconitus, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. John. John the Baptist. This is an introduction to John the Baptist. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. There have been that long line of Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament, but as the Gospels begin, like Luke here, we're still in that Old Testament time period. The last Old Testament prophet recorded in the Old Testament was Malachi, and then there were 400 years of silence where God did not speak to a, a, a prophet. But four centuries after the last one written in the Old Testament, God spoke to another prophet. He spoke through John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Um, Old Testament prophets were raised up by God to give warning signs to the people of Israel, to call them back into a relationship with God, to warn them that if they don't, judgment was coming. And this was true with John the Baptist. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, uh, the fire alarm went off here, if you were here, and, and we uh, emptied this place, and, um, uh, you know, every, it was orderly, and everybody left, and it was, you know, thank God nothing happened, but no one sat here and said, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to go. No one belligerently um, refused to move. They listened. We listened to the warning sirens. Um, that's where Old Testament prophets were. They were warning sirens. The problem in the Old Testament was that people didn't listen to the warning sirens. Here comes Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea, Joel, Amos, a whole line of Old Testament prophets. And they were sounding the warning cry. 
return to the Lord or judgment is going to fall. It's coming. And, um, but they refuse to listen. Chronicles chapter 36 says that the Lord, the God of the fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and until there was no more remedy. That was the pattern in the Old Testament. Well, here comes on the scene this, this guy dressed in camel's hair who ate locusts and wild honey and out there in the wilderness uh, along the Jordan River. Um, he comes on the scene as the final Old Testament prophet. God's compassion for his people was showing up one more time to have a, a prophet come on the scene and um, call the people to repentance. Would the people listen this time? Well, um, the odds were pretty much against it. You see, in this time of, of, uh, of John the Baptist, this, this first century, this time of... Uh, of the history of Judaism, where John was, where Jesus walked on this earth, where Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost. The things in, in, of the Jewish people were, they, they were as low as they probably ever had been in their history. These were not good times. And that's because the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the Jewish people, were wicked people. Um, the key man in the leadership of Judaism was a man by the name of Annas. He had five sons who followed him as a, in the high priesthood of Israel. He had a, a son-in-law by the name of Caiaphas who followed him. He had a grandson. And basically, the family of Annas had, had, a, had a lock on the, the spiritual life and the spiritual leadership of the aristocracy of Judaism of that day. And what we know about this family, they were, they were despicable. They were evil people. Um, they were very wealthy. They were very powerful. They were very corrupt. They were very friendly with Rome. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said Annas and Caiaphas used their money, their power, to bribe anybody they could to line their own pockets with wealth. This family of Annas, this, this family of, of high priests, um, they would, again, Josephus said, they would, not, they would not hesitate to resort to even murder to get what they wanted. Um, very, very corrupt. One author wrote of Caiaphas, he said, of all men mentioned in the crucifixion records, Caiaphas is surely the most despicable. He was, not, he was that not uncommon phenomena, a man of low character in a high place. In religion, he found not a conviction, but he found a career. Uh, we could talk a lot about this. You could go and research this yourself. But, you know, Jesus said, um, you, you've made the temple a den of thieves, and uh, that's pregnant with meaning. Everybody knew these guys were corrupt. But they were the high priests. They had the control of the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the day. This was Israel of the first century. 
This is the world that John the Baptist came and spoke into. This is the world that Jesus came into, was born into. This is the world that Peter preached to in his day of Pentecost sermon. So here comes John on the scene. Now, what was his mission? Well, we keep reading in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. What was John's mission? He was a voice. He was there to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare Israel's hearts to receive the Messiah. That was his mission. He was the proverbial bulldozer to come and smooth out the path, fill in the ravines, to make the coming of the Messiah a reality as he would turn the hearts of the people to God. And that was his message. It says in verse 3, what was his message? He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He preached baptism, repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, who was his audience? Let's not forget this. Let's keep this in front of us. It was the Jewish people. It was Israel. That was his audience. The people to whom God had entered into a, an unconditional covenant way back in the, through the life of their father Abraham. They were a people of God. Of all the peoples, of all the nations on the face of the earth, God says, I'm going to choose Israel. They're going to be my special people in a covenant relationship. Um, and God never revoked that covenant. Uh, John the Baptist is speaking to people who are part of the covenantal community of God, the Jewish people. And like the Old Testament prophets, John's message was to this covenantal people, the Jewish people, to get right with God, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. They were called to repent and to return back to God. Now the word repent, the word repent is a, a Greek word metanoia, which basically is interpreted or translated as a change of mind. Change of mind, uh, John the Baptist is saying, you've got you, you to get your thinking in line with truth. You've got to correct your thinking and return back to God. You've got to start living like the special people that you are. Um, so John is calling Israel to change your thinking, to return to God as their special people. But John the Baptist, unlike other Old Testament prophets, added something in his message that the other Old Testament prophets didn't add. John added this little idea of be baptized. Old Testament prophets didn't do that. It was a call to turn their hearts back to God, to repent, but change their thinking about who God is, about who they are. But John the Baptist adds this idea of be baptized. Where did that come from? What's going on here? Well, let me give you a little background, a little history. Um, starting in, in uh, what's called the Second Temple era, which would be about the end of the the second century B.C., the beginning of the last century B.C., um, on into through this period of the time of Christ, it's called the Second Temple Era, um, 
ritual cleansings um, became all the rage in Judaism. Now, in the Old Testament law, there were, um, um, there were laws about washings and certain times of cleansings. But uh, and it's interesting, archaeologists have, have found this out. Starting around uh, 100 B.C. Um, on to the time of Christ, there was something more that was instituted into Judaism. And it was these ritual baths, these cleansing pools that were called mikvahs, a mikvah. And if you go to Israel today, you see these, these pools. The Hebrew word mikvah means a gathering, a pooling, um, or predominantly that's what it means. And so throughout uh, Israel, uh, these mikvahs have been on earth, and they date back to that second temple era, that 100 B.C. on through uh, the end of that millennia and the beginning of uh, the time of Christ. Um, they're all over. Um, they were very important in the, in the ritual life of, uh, of uh, this time period of Israel. Um, the reason they were important is that um, they symbolically represented a, a cleansing um, a cleansing of defilement so that they could become, a, a Jew could become a, a fitting worshiper of God. You have to go through these cleansings to go to the temple and various other reasons. And uh, again, they became all the rage. So at John's time, in the time of Jesus, the time of Peter, as he's preaching this sermon on the day of Pentecost, everybody knew, everybody saw mikvahs. They were the ritual cleansings that Jewish people went through. Um, the gathering pools for spiritual cleansing. Um, so it was very common. It was a very common practice. Now, there's something more, though, I think, deeply embedded in this idea of the mikvah, of the cleansing pool. And that brings us to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Uh, this Hebrew word mikvah is used 11 times in the Old Testament. Uh, of, of various pools and gatherings of water. But Jeremiah does something different. Three times in Jeremiah's um, written word, uh, he uses the word mikvah differently. Let me share them with you. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8, he says, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. The word hope is mikveh. The hope of Israel, the Savior in time of distress. In Jeremiah 17, 13, he said this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame because they've forsaken the fountain of living waters, even the Lord, Jehovah. The hope of Israel, the mekveh, the, the same word that is used, the hope of Israel. Or in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 7, they have sinned against the Lord who is the habitation of righteousness, even the Lord. Jehovah, the hope of their fathers, Mekveh, the, the cleansing pool, the gathering of living waters that bring hope to Israel. God, Jehovah, his Messiah is the Mekveh, is the cleansing fount, is the place of, of salvation, is the place of hope. So in Jeremiah, the mikvah was not some gathering pool of water. It was a person. 
Jeremiah says this mikveh is, is the Messiah, is the Lord God, the Savior of Israel. And so what is John doing, John the Baptist? What he's doing is calling people to change their thinking about who God is. He is the voice making way for the Messiah to come. Who? The mikveh of Israel. The hope of Israel. And symbolically, he calls people to come, accept this message. The Messiah is coming. Now, show forth your repented heart. Accept and identify with the mikvah of Jeremiah, the hope of Israel. He's calling people to identify with their hope and to demonstrate that through the waters of the mikvah, of the ceremonial cleansing, which every Jew would have been familiar with. Now let's keep reading. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, and, he's, and Matthew tells us, predominantly he's focusing now on the religious leaders, the Pharisees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits or bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Have you changed your mind about who Messiah is? About the message of hope for Israel? Well, bring forth the fruits that are in keeping with that repentance. And um, do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father. We're, we're Jews. We're connected with Abraham. We're shoe-ins for uh, a relationship with God. We're the covenantal people. We're, we're tight with God, Jehovah. Why do we have to repent? What do we have to change our thinking about? What do we have to identify with? We're Jews. We're connected with Abraham. And John the Baptist said, For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And then he gives a warning. A very important word of warning. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Judgment is coming. And the people said in verse 10, the crowds questioning him said, what, Well, then what shall we do? And he answered and said to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors were coming and being baptized, and they said, What should we do, teacher? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Don't cheat the people, in other words. And the soldiers, verse 14, were questioning him, and they said, Well, what about us? What shall we do? How shall we show forth the fruits of repentance? And he said, Don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. John is calling them to do something. He's calling the Jewish people to get their heart right with God, to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, to change their thinking about the coming judgment, about who God is, about their relationship with God, about who they are as a covenantal people. Repent and bring forth the fruits that is keeping with repentance. Prepare the way of the Messiah's coming. Become the faithful generation that none of the past generations were. Be that generation of faithful, righteous people 
who will welcome the coming of the Messiah when he comes. And if you don't, well, the axe is ready to chop you down and judgment is going to come. Now, that theme of judgment is repeated elsewhere. Um, Luke chapter 13, um, people come up to Jesus and talk about a, 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 a tragic event that happened when the when the, uh, a, a wall fell on people, people died, and, and what about that? And Jesus three, uh, two times says, uh, hey, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He said it very poignantly in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Wow, that's a pronouncement of a curse. The guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah will go to fall on you. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's talking to the Jewish people who had rejected over and over again. And then later, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus makes this prophecy. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Judgment was coming. It was a message they heard over and over and over again. And what were the Jewish people asking to do? What should we do? And John the Baptist said, well, you better repent. You've got to get your thinking in line with what is true and bring forth the fruits necessary with repentance to receive the Messiah when he comes and identify with this message of hope through the mikvah of the washings of baptism. Well, sadly, like their forefathers, this generation of Jewish people at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus and the people to whom Peter was preaching to, they rejected that message. We have no king but Caesar. The tragedy is those religious leaders, Annas, Caiaphas, those, that cesspool, that den of iniquity, of religious leaders um, knowingly put to death their Messiah. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. They knew Jesus ticked every one of those things off. And they put him to death. If we can get rid of this guy, he's honing in on our business, we've got to get rid of him. And they crucified him. Of course, Jesus pulled a credible one off when three days later he rose again. And all bets are off at that point. Now we come back to Acts chapter 2. So Jesus is raised from the dead, Acts chapter 1, and he, he teaches his disciples uh, for 40 days before he ascends to heaven. He teaches them about the coming kingdom. Then he ascends at the right hand of the Father, sends forth the Holy Spirit, the passages that we've seen in Acts chapter 2. And um, Peter begins his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He quotes from the Old Testament. He calls them 
uh, and convicts them of their sin, you nailed to the cross the Messiah. This one who God made both Lord and Messiah, you crucified. Will there be any hope for the Jewish people of that generation? Will, will, will they one more time have an opportunity to hear that message? Will turn from their wicked ways? What will they do with Peter's message? After explaining those scriptures to them about Jesus, after hearing his conviction, his, his um, judgment against them that they crucified the Messiah, we read in verse 36, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. It dawned on them what they had done. We've, we've crucified the Messiah. We, we are guilty of taking the Son of God and killing him. But Peter said, but he, he rose from the dead. <laughs> and he's alive right now at the right hand of the Father. He is both Lord and Christ, this one that you crucified. They're cut, they're pierced to the heart, and what do they say? What shall we do? It's the very same thing that people said under John the Baptist. What shall we do? It says, they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, what shall we do? And Peter answers, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the very same message that John the Baptist had shared. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The very same message that John, three and a half years or three years earlier, was sharing with the Jewish people, that generation of Jews, who had rejected that message, God is now through Peter and the apostles in that day of Pentecost sermon is offering them one more time a gracious opportunity to get right with their God. What are we to do? And with that same message, he says, you've got to change your thinking. You've got to line it up with what I just preached. Know for certain that this Jesus is Lord and Messiah they're pierced to the heart. They have to accept that. And then in typical Jewish fashion of that century, he invites them to symbolically show that and their identification with the hope of Israel in the mikvah, the hope of baptism. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them and saying, be saved from this perverse the Greek word is scolios. Be saved from this perverse generation. Just like John the Baptist had said, just like Jesus had warned, now Peter is offering to these Jewish people one more time the opportunity to be delivered from what? From the coming judgment that Jesus said was going to fall. Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. O covenantal people of God, O specially chosen people who are the apple of God's eye, you Jewish people, you need to change your thinking and return to God. 
and go through the mikvah of cleansing and identify with the hope of Israel, the living fountain of Jehovah God. Now here's the point. Peter's message of repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins was a message for that generation of Jews. Those Palestinian Jews who had rejected their Messiah, the one that you crucified, Peter said, you need to, O Jewish nation, change your thinking and enter the mikvah cleansing of the hope of Israel. And that's why throughout the rest of the book of Acts, that message of baptism for forgiveness of sins is not found because Peter was directing his attention and focus to that generation of Jews, calling them to be saved, be delivered from this perverse generation of Annas, of Caiaphas, of the religious leaders who is dragging you and pulling you down to destruction. That's why repent and be baptized isn't found elsewhere in the scriptures. Its message was for this generation of Jewish people who had crucified the Messiah. And God is offering that generation another opportunity of hope if they would care to accept it. Now we know that 3,000 people were added that day. We know in the next uh, uh, passage that there's going to be 5,000 men who turned to Christ that day, uh, not mentioning women and children. There might have been 10, 12,000 people who came and turned to the Messiah that day. But we also know historically that um, the nation did not turn. Um, their murderous rampage continued. And we'll see in chapter 6 and 7 that a man by the name of Stephen is martyred. And, and then James, the leader of the church, is killed. And, and, they, and they, a great persecution sets in. And the nation rejects again the call to change your thinking. Identify through the mikvah, the cleansing waters, to the hope of Israel. And they rejected that message. In 70 A.D., the Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem and indeed trampled it underfoot. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. A million Jews were slaughtered. And judgment came, just like Jesus said it would. Um, that message, that message of offering hope to that generation of Jews basically fell on deaf ears. Now, sadly, that message that was given for that generation of Jewish people has erroneously been brought over into many of our denominations today that want to add to this free gift of eternal life through faith alone the message of you have to be baptized to be saved. It's just simply a misinterpretation of this passage. But what we also see developing in the book of Acts is that coming out of that Jewish ritual of the mikvah, of the, of the identification with this message of hope, that message was also brought over into the early church. So that baptism was brought into the traditions of the church of Jesus Christ because even our Lord said, go into all the world and make disciples of people. 
and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things. Call them into a discipleship relationship with me. And that first step of discipleship, Jesus said, is going to be identifying with your only hope, Jesus. Last uh, two weeks ago, we had 15 people go through the, uh, the baptism service. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to identify with that message of hope and proclaim it to the world. And so as we see throughout the book of Acts, baptism is still a key sacrament of the church, not to earn eternal life, but because we already have received it and we are now proclaiming to the world our identity with Jesus, the hope of the world. Well, um, we'll see as we continue our study of the book of Acts that though a small percentage of Jews did turn to faith in Christ, the vast majority did not, and the message of this wonderful gift of salvation gets turned to another group of people, the Gentiles, through a man who is raised up in chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, a fiery Jew who finally came to his senses and became the missionary to the Gentile world. Um, okay. You see, I could have done that in a podcast, and you, I could have just turned it to you, and I, you know, you know you're probably not going to walk out of here with fuzzy, warm feelings this morning, but that's okay. Hopefully I've cleared up a little bit. Hopefully it isn't more confusing. But I will say this. If you haven't read the news, read the newspapers or listened to the news recently, we too are living in a perverse generation. We are living in times of darkness and it's ever increasing. It's ever-increasing. We're living in a perverse and crooked generation, and there is another day of reckoning that's coming. As sure as we're sitting here, there's another day of judgment, a day of wrath that's going to befall this world, the likes of which Jesus said the world has never seen. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD pales in comparison to what is coming and it's going to fall on this world. God is going to say one day, enough's enough. And he's going to rise up. And the line of Judah is going to roar. And he's going to put an end to this perverse generation. And there's a simple message of hope that this world needs to hear. A very simple message that says, I want to give you a free gift. I'm going to give you a way of escape. I'm going to give you a way of rescue. And it's not to do all sorts of religious hocus-pocus stuff. I'm not going to ask of you anything. I'm not going to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, walk an aisle, be baptized, obey the Ten Commandments, give money to the poor. Because there's nothing you can do, God says, that can earn one little spot in my heaven to merit anything of my grace. And that's why it's called grace. God gives us what we don't deserve. And what does he give us? The free gift of eternal life. And how is that received? Well, we have a whole gospel, the gospel of John. 98 times the word believe or faith is used. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him 
will not perish but have everlasting life. There's one message of hope for us today, for this world today. It's Jesus Christ. He is the hope, not just of Israel, he is the hope of the world. He is the living fountain of blessing. He is the Savior who wants to be our Savior. He came and he died for our sins. He rose again. He offers, because he did all the work, he paid for our sins, the free gift of eternal life to anyone who simply puts their faith in him. And then he invites us, after we've put our faith in him, to identify and proclaim that message to the world. And the first step of that discipleship is the waters, the mikvah, the waters of baptism, to proclaim the mikvah, our hope, is Jesus. Is he your hope today? Have you been cleansed, not by the waters of baptism, have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Do you know that if you were to die today, you're going to go to heaven? Is there any doubt in your mind? Well, let's remove that doubt by simply saying, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, did all the work. He paid for your sins, he rose again, and he says, I'm going to give you a free gift. Just transfer your faith off of yourself, put it onto me. And in that moment of faith, Jesus said, you have everlasting life. Would you bow your head, please? Our God, our Father, we pray that the world and the evil one who holds this world in the grip of his hand for this short time wants to confuse this message, wants to blur it, wants to add to it all sorts of things, of things that we will offer you, of what we will do to get your attention to gain eternal life. But Father, the message is clear. You have said it and spoken it clearly. There is salvation in no other name. There's no other name given among men by which we are saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for sending your Son to die for us, who rose again triumphantly and is coming again in, in victory and put in everything right in this world. Thank you for Jesus, who alone is our hope, our mikvah. In his name we pray, amen.